pray. God, thank you for this time, for how you work in and through our lives and how you bless us, how you touch us and watch over us, and you have such amazing opportunities in our life when we trust in you and follow you. There's times when things happen that we don't understand, and Lord, we just pray that you would give us understanding through your Spirit. Bless us in this time, Lord. Lift us up with your word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I remember it as if it was yesterday. Fifteen years ago, my brother got a phone call. Uh, my son, uh, my uh, father had had a heart attack, and he had gone to the hospital. Uh, my brother, who was the executor, decided to put him on a ventilator to give him some time for his body to recover, hoping that he would respond. A couple weeks had gone by. He hadn't improved. The phone call told my brother that my dad's blood pressure was 44 over 20, and they didn't think he was going to make it through the day. So my brother calls me, comes, picks me up. We drive an hour and 45 minutes out to Hammett to go to the hospital. Along the way, we're talking, realizing that we know my dad does not want to be left on a ventilator, and that when we get there, we're going to take him off the ventilator. Well, we got there, and we talked with the nurses a little bit, and they are getting ready to do that, and an amazing experience happened. My dad, for a moment, gained consciousness, and his eyes opened. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I said, Dad, we're going to take you off the ventilator. And he shook his head, yes. And I said, you know what that means, Dad? And he shook his head, yes. At that moment, my dad understood that this was going to be the end of his life. I understood that this was going to be the end of his life, but he was okay with that. And it was a really wonderful moment to experience that with my, with my dad. Today we get to chapter 26 in the story. And in this chapter, we are going to look at the end of Jesus' life, his last week of his life, and we're going to look at his death. And I want us to understand how Jesus' life and death helps to put perspective for you and for me, our life, and ultimately our death. It started with Palm Sunday. It started with Jesus riding in on a donkey, with everybody waving these palms, being excited about all the miracles they had heard him do. It started with him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, highest king. It started with excitement and, and praising him. But it would end with crucify him. Crucify him. So I want to walk us through that time, even though it started with Palm Sunday, a few days went by and things began to change. And Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. I want you to look down at your feet for a moment. Think about your feet. A few years ago in my church in Long Beach, I talked with some members for a Good Friday service. And when the service came time, I had them come forward and I washed their feet. Now, they had all agreed to let me do that, but I know for a fact that when it came time for it to happen, and they took off their shoes, and they took off their socks, and I began to wash their feet, it was very, Carol was one of them, it was very uncomfortable, wasn't it? Even though you had agreed to do it, it was very uncomfortable. 
Think about it. If you came forward and I washed your feet, that would be very uncomfortable. What if, what if Jesus washed your feet? See, this is what happened. Jesus met with his disciples, and they had had a meal together. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, and he grabs his basin, and he grabs a towel, and he starts to wash their feet. Now, you could think about our feet, how we feel like they kind of get dirty. But think about back then. They wore sandals, and they had dirt roads. See, the, the role of washing the feet went to the servant, right? They would walk into a house, and there would be a basin there, and the servant would come and would wash their feet, all the feet of the guests as they came in. But in this particular night, in this particular house, there was no servant to wash their feet. And so Jesus played the role of a servant for his disciples. Well, if you know anything about Peter, you know that Peter is a reactive one. And when it came time for Jesus to wash Peter's feet, we have, we see him come to wash their feet. And read, whenever you see other line parts or yellow parts, please read the scriptures with me. John 13, 68. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Ultimately, Jesus does wash his disciples, Peter's feet and the disciples' feet. And he helps them to understand, look, I am playing the role of servant for you. The master has become your servant. And I'm doing this to give you an example because once I leave, you are going to be the leaders of this movement. And I need you to be servant leaders. As I have served you, so you will serve others, and you will be a servant leadership, a leader. And then that leads us to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. You know, whenever we think about the Lord's Supper, we think about back at this time, right? We think about this very moment in the upper room after Jesus washed their feet, and he gets out the elements, and he begins to help them to understand not only what he's going to do, but why he's going to do it. And he does it through the Lord's Supper. I know we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month. So sometimes it can just become kind of a commonplace thing, right? Something we do all the time. But when we come upon scriptures like this and times like this, Holy Week, when we think about what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, hopefully it makes a little bit more impact in our lives. They had just had a meal, and now the Lord's Supper was to be an extension of this meal that they had with Jesus, an extension of what they had already eaten, not just to remember what they did with Jesus, not to just remember what Jesus was going to do for them, but something more profound. Maybe if you think about this experience, maybe it means a little bit more to you. Maybe it becomes a little bit more important in your life. Jesus invites you to the table. It is a holy invitation. It is a meal like no other meal. Jesus is the servant who serves you the meal. But even more, this meal is about Jesus. 
Jesus wants the disciples and us to understand it is not just eating bread or drinking juice or wine. It is about Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross, his broken body, his blood poured out willingly for us, a gift that he has given to us. He does not want this gift to be lost on us. Jesus does this all knowing that Judas will betray him. Jesus does this knowing that his disciples will scatter and hide. Jesus knows that all of this is going to happen, and he does it anyway, knowing that it is the only way. So it is a remembering, yes, but it is more than a remembering. It is the very power of Jesus Christ, his body and blood poured out, broken for you and for me. Because as Grace said, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot... Be holy enough. And so Jesus knew that this was the only way. His very power coming into our lives, cleansing us, washing us clean, renewing us, empowering us with his power by the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is effectual, meaning that it impacts our life in a very deep spiritual way. Way. It's not just remembering, it is effectual. It impacts our life whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew that his disciples would miss him when he left. You know, if anyone, if you've ever had a close friend move away, you know, you know, it's like, oh, bye, you know, but the bye is like, oh, I'm going to miss you, I'm not going to see you. Jesus knew that, and so he wanted to give them some encouragement. He gave them a couple of things of encouragement. He says in John 14, 1 to 3, again, read the underlined part with me. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. See, Jesus is meeting with them. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be leaving, and he's talking to them, and he's trying to prepare them, and they're not wanting to hear it, right? He can see the anxiety, the, the, the worry, the, the fear, the troubledness that they are experiencing as he is trying to process what is going to happen. And so he gives this encouragement. He says, I know you. I know what you need. I know what you like. I know what you want. And what's so amazing, he says, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Isn't that amazing encouragement? That Jesus is preparing a place for you, a place for me, so that ultimately when we leave this earth, which is not our final destination, when we leave this earth, God is there for us, and he has prepared a place for us to be. There's a song that is written off of this passage, and it's called, Do Not Let Your Hearts Be Troubled. And the words say this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Put your trust in God. Believe in me. You are mine. Do not be afraid. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. These promises are true. I will go to prepare a place. Prepare a place for you. Then I will come again. I will come again. Yes, I'll come again. Come for you. Do not let your heart be afraid. What wonderful, encouraging, comforting words Jesus gives to us. But he gives a second encouragement. And the second encouragement he says is, I know you're going to miss me when I leave, but it is good that I'm leaving, and when I leave, something wonderful will happen. The Holy Spirit will come. And he says this in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is Jesus' second encouragement. I'm leaving, but something wonderful is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come and going to be with you. The Holy Spirit will be our counselor. You know, there are things that we cannot know on our own. We can only know when we have the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit there is to, to give us understanding. The Holy Spirit is to guide us and to counsel us and to be led into the truth. Of God. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit is always with us. There's never a time when we don't have access to God. There's never a time when we don't have God's presence with us because He lives in us. I hope you can take in that truth, that, that profound truth. All we have to do is learn how to tune our hearts and our minds to the Spirit. Kind of like, you know, how you, when you're trying to find a station on the radio, right? And you're, remember the old, the ones that had dials, right? And you're like, and then you hit it and like, oh, I got my station, right? And you have to find, you have to tune it to that right place. And that's what we have to learn how to do, tune our hearts and our minds to connect with the Spirit of God. And then we can hear from the Spirit. We can be guided by the Spirit. The Spirit will be our counselor. The Spirit will teach us truth. The Spirit will give us understanding. The Spirit will guide us down the right path. The Spirit will rebuke us when we're doing wrong and remind us of what the right is that we are called to do. Well, the Holy Spirit has many roles, but uh, one of the roles I'm going to talk about here right now through the movie Pinocchio. Pinocchio is one of my favorite movies. And I love how, you know, uh, Geppetto wants Pinocchio to become a real boy, right? And so he hopes and he hopes, and the blue fairy comes, and sure enough, she turns Pinocchio into a boy. But she knows that Pinocchio needs help, so what does she do? She gives him Jiminy Cricket, right? And Jiminy Cricket is to be his what? His conscience, right? But Pinocchio thinks he knows everything, right? He says, I don't need a conscience, and so off Pinocchio goes, and the whole movie is about Pinocchio making all these bad choices, right? And getting himself into one trouble after another trouble after another trouble, all the while denying that he needs a conscience. And by the end of the movie, we realize Pinocchio needs a conscience. <laughs> and hopefully, by the end of the movie, and in our lives, we realize we need a conscience, don't we? The Holy Spirit plays so many roles, but one of the roles he plays in our life is that of being our conscience. We are prone to sin. We're prone to walk down the wrong road. We are prone to make wrong decisions. And the Holy Spirit is there to say, no, 
Don't do that. Or afterwards, you know what? You shouldn't have done that. Go confess your sin to God. And because of what Jesus has done, you will be forgiven. That is an amazing role that the Holy Spirit plays in your life and my life. But you know what's dangerous? Is you can harden your heart to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can be there saying, no, don't do that. And you're like, ah, I'm like Pinocchio, right? I don't need a conscience. And you go off. Next thing you know, you get swallowed up by a whale, right? And you're like, how did I get here? God, why did you let this happen to me? And God said, that's your doing. Come back to me, listen to my spirit, and you'll be okay. So God gives us that spirit. Well, he's spent all this time with his disciples, right? This is on Thursday. He spends all this time uh, with his disciples Thursday night, and then he goes off a little bit later into the night, Thursday night still, and he goes to pray, and he asks his disciples to pray for him. And then he goes a little farther, and he prays for himself. And we're told in Luke 22, 39 to 44, Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now this takes you quickly through that whole experience, but if you listen quickly to, or if you listen deeply to the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus had great anguish, didn't he? He was struggling. He knew that his whole purpose of being on the earth was to go to the cross and to die. But now the time was coming near. You ever had to do something really difficult, really scary, really troublesome, and the closer you got to the time, the more nervous you got, the more fearful you got, the more you're like, maybe I don't have to do this. Maybe there's some other way, right? And the humanness of Jesus gets to this place where he starts to agonize, knowing what it would be like to be crucified. And there's a moment for him where he says, you know, God, is there, God the Father, is there any other way we can do this? I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I can suffer the agony I'm going to suffer. And he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But then he realizes, wait a minute, I know why I'm here. I know the love I have for my, my children. I know what I need to do. I have to go to the cross. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he gives himself one more time over to the will of the Father, knowing that he needs to follow through on this plan of being crucified. And he prays that he would have the strength to carry it out. Long before Jesus ever came to this earth, King David had fear in his life. If you follow the story of David, you know that David had a lot of fearful moments in his life. And he writes some amazing words in Psalm 23, 4. He says, I will fear no evil. 
How can David make such a bold statement? I will fear no evil. He made that statement because he knew who his God was. He could make that statement because he knew that he couldn't put his trust in his sheep. He couldn't put his trust in his people. He couldn't put his trust in himself. The only one he could put his trust in was his God. And then he says, For you are with me. You, your rod and your staff, they come from me. How can he fear no evil? Because he knows that God's strength, God's power, God's presence, God's comfort will be there with him and get him through anything that he has to face. If you've ever golfed or you've ever seen golf on TV, you know that it is not good to hit yourself (laughs) behind a tree. Right? First of all, I mean, look at what you have to hit out of. I mean, it's not like smooth grass, right? It's really difficult to hit a ball out of that. But secondly, what's in front of you? A tree, right? Now, here's the key thought that you need to understand. When you're getting ready to hit out, you don't look at the tree that you don't want to hit, right? You look at the opening that you want to hit through. You don't look at the tree. You don't look at the obstacle. You look at the opening where you need to go, right? And so it is true in our life. When we're facing troubles, when we're facing fears, when we're facing things that cause us anxiety, you don't look at the the thing that causes you fear, that causes you stress, that causes you anxiety, that causes you trouble. You don't look at that. You look at the opening where God wants you to go. And even more, you look at God himself who's standing in that opening to guide you through that. There's an amazing passage here in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What? Lay aside. Don't look at it. Don't dwell on it. Lay it aside. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Because we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He had joy, ultimately, knowing what his sacrifice would do for you and for me. And so we look to Jesus. That, he's the one that gets us through any trial, any fear, any struggle that we might be facing. Jesus can give us strength when we need it. We need to focus, though, on him. Look to him and not those things. How often do you look at that problem and you dwell on that problem? Or you look at the issue and you dwell on the issue? Or you you dwell on your anxiety and your stress? Or you think about that person that's causing you an issue and you dwell on it and you think on it and you look at it instead of saying, look to Jesus. Setting aside these other things, look to Jesus. That's what we need to do in life. So after his prayer, we're told a band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, what? That it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. If ever there was a trial that was fixed, 
It was Jesus' trial. The Jews, especially the religious leaders, did not want Jesus to go free. He was a thorn in their side. He had turned the people away from their teachings. He had been a problem, and Jesus had to go. And they were not going to accept anything but a, a guilty verdict. You know, our court system is supposed to find out the truth, right? And if you're innocent, you're supposed to go free, and then if you're guilty, you're found guilty, and you go to jail, right? But that doesn't always happen, does it? I'm going to give you a couple of situations uh, where this didn't happen. There's one whose name, her name is Pammy Marquette. And back in 1997, she was convicted of murdering her two-year-old son. And so she was imprisoned for 14 years. They thought that she had killed her son. She had two other sons, and they were put in the foster care system, taken away, of course, from her. But 14 years later, they actually discovered that her son had died of an epileptic seizure and that she had not murdered him. And she ultimately got out of prison. But what a difficult situation, having to try to reestablish the relationship with her two sons. Wrongly convicted. Then there's a name of a guy named Arthur Allen Thomas. You know, sometimes law enforcement is corrupt, right? They want to solve a crime, and so they'll do anything that they can to solve that crime. In his situation, they took a shell, and they planted it, a shell of his, and they planted it in the yard of someone who's murdered so that they could frame him and that he could be found guilty and sent to prison. Wrongly convicted. Could you imagine being in prison all the while knowing that you are innocent, but you have been found guilty even though you didn't commit the crime. I can only imagine that Jesus felt this way. He was not guilty, right? He was innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong worthy of death. But the trial was fixed, and there was not going to be any other verdict but guilty. And Jesus knew that. In fact, it was all prophesied ahead of time that he would be found guilty. And Jesus responds to Pilate in this way, you know, like, come, give me a response. What do you want to say, Jesus? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given up you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus, at a moment's notice, could have just wiped everything out and said, enough, I'm done with this. This is ridiculous. I'm, I'm innocent. I'm God. I could just change everything. I could wipe you all out. I could do whatever I want. Jesus willingly went through that fixed trial. He willingly took the beating he took. He willingly was allowed, allowed himself to be found guilty. He willingly carried the cross to Golgotha. He willingly allowed them to pound the nails into his, his hands and his feet. He willingly allowed them to kill him, crucify him. I mean, the people themselves, remember they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, but at this moment... Remember, they brought out Barabbas, and he says, here's Barabbas, and here's Jesus. You can choose one person to set free, and, and here's Barabbas as a murderer, a known murderer, a found guilty murderer. And they said, free Barabbas. And to Jesus, they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's deserving of death, they said. 
Now, many people had trouble with Jesus dying. They wonder, is there any other way that God could have done it? I suppose there was another way that God could have done it, maybe. But there needed to be sacrificing of blood. And Jesus chose, or God chose to do it this way. Remember, we're told Jesus left the confines of heaven to come to earth so that he might be able to die for you and me. Jesus' death had purpose and reason. It's a true story of a church service that was happening, and they sang the hymns, and it came time for the sermon. And the pastor invited his friend, the guest minister, to come and speak. And the minister came, and he told this story to the congregation. He says, there's a story of a father and his son and his son's friend, and they went sailing one day, and they were having a great day, but all of a sudden, this storm came upon them quickly. And even though the father was a, an experienced sailor, the, the, the storm came upon them so suddenly that he couldn't get the boat back to shore. And in fact, the storm caused the boat to capsize, sending all three of them out into the ocean. And the father was able to get back to the boat, and he grabbed the lifeline, and he looked down, and there was his son, and there was his son's friend. And he realized they were both in great trouble. He had to decide, who was I going to throw the lifeline to? He, he realized that there probably wasn't enough time to save both of them. He knew that his son was a Christian. And he knew that his son's friend was not. And he locked eyes with his son, and then he looked at his son's friend, and he threw the lifeline to his son's friend. And he pulled him in. And as soon as he got him on board, he looked to throw the line, lifeline back out to his son. His son was gone. His son's body was never recovered. And he finished the story, and he sat down, and they finished the service. And at the end of the service, there's two, two teenage boys that came up to the guest minister, and they were kind of chuckling, you know, a little nervous, and they said, that, that's a good story, but we don't believe that that's true. And the minister said, yeah, it doesn't seem real at all, does it? It seems a little far-fetched. And the teenage boy said, yeah. And the guest minister said, well, I don't know if I'd believe it if I heard someone tell it too, but I know it's true. And the reason why I know it's true is because I was the father and your minister was my son's friend. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has come. He's willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. He's thrown us a lifeline. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, Amen. And I pray that you would say, thank you, Jesus. And I pray that you would show God that you are thankful for what Jesus has done for you, given you this free gift. You have received it. I pray that you would show your thankfulness by the way you live your life for God. But even more importantly, the way you tell others that there is a lifeline to God, that they don't have to remain lost, that they don't have to drown in the, the sea of life.
that Jesus has thrown them a lifeline. And all they have to do is grab it and be saved. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would ask, please, Jesus, I do want this lifeline. I do want this free gift. I do want to be saved. And that you would grab a hold of that lifeline and that you would say, Lord, please forgive me for the wrongs I have done. Help me to live with you and for you. Help me to live a better life. Help me to live a life that makes a difference and that has purpose and meaning. And God will come into your life and he will free you from the burden of sin and the burden of this world. Let us pray.